Well, good morning. If I haven't, <clears throat> excuse me, gotten a chance to meet you, my name is Father Mike Cranach. I'm a friend of Father Joe's, and it's a pleasure to be here this morning. Uh, was able to be here once last month, which was really a delight, and was all set to come a second time. But you remember we had that infamous ice and snowstorm that closed just about every church in town that Sunday morning. So glad to have another opportunity to be here. We're going to take a look at the readings that were just proclaimed from Scripture this morning and see what the Lord might have to speak to us and into our lives. To begin, let me say this. I came across something this week that I thought was really interesting, and it was uh, an article about the fact that psychologists and sociologists are studying uh, the effects of modern culture, technology, things like that, um, on human behavior and even on brain chemistry. And they were looking at um, a phenomenon, they might say, that at least these scientists were calling the, the close enough syndrome. Not really a syndrome like a diagnosable illness, but a close enough um, approach to life. Now, what does that mean? It, they were looking at the fact that before, even just a few years ago, if you wanted to go deep sea diving or see Europe or uh, have a relationship one-on-one -on -one with somebody, you had to travel and go to those places or speak with somebody face-to-face -face, uh, or any, any manner of thing like that. Now, from one couple clicks on our phone or our computer, we can vicariously experience just about anything, just about anywhere, all around the world, through somebody else's eyes. A lot of people, uh, they fit favorite vacation places, and most places on the beach or different things like that have a webcam that's on 24 hours. So if you want to just see what's happening at your favorite vacation spot, you can just pull it up and look at it for a couple minutes. If you want to experience what it's like to uh, be on an Alaskan cruise or something, you can go and see it through somebody else's eyes. If you want to try to develop uh, an intimate, real, personal relationship. There's ways to try to do that through technology without ever having to interact face-to-face -face with a real person. Now, even a short time ago, people would say, and, and it's still my reaction of like, oh, how sad. That's not really living. It's not bad. It's not, I don't believe that technology is evil. I believe it's neutral. Depends how you use it, what you're doing with it. But I would say, how sad to not really have those relationships, to not really have those experiences, to not really go to those places, but just swipe it by, take a quick 10, 12 second look at it, and be on. That's not really living. But what the psychologists and sociologists were studying was an increased sense among people that, eh, it's good enough. It's close enough. I don't really need to go. Why go enjoy the game outside where it's cold and the hassle and go through security? I can just watch it for a couple minutes and move on to the next thing. It's close enough. It's good enough. Hold that thought for just a second as we look at some of the things in the scriptures, and I think we will be able to tie it back together and see something that the Lord would show us. We're going to take start first with the gospel that was read, Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 17. 
This, a lot of the verses here will sound familiar because it sounds just like the most well-known speech that Jesus gave, which was the Sermon on the Mount. This is often called the Sermon on the Plain because it's not on a mountaintop. It's on a, you'll see, on a plain. But a lot of the phrases and a lot of the, the themes and the topics that Jesus is talking about are similar because it's the core and it's the heart of his message. And certainly he gave it more than one time and more than one place. So that's what we're seeing here. Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea, Jerusalem and the coast of Tyre and Sidon. They came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. All in the crowd were trying to touch him, for the power came out from him and healed them all. This encounter that Jesus is having is unique in a lot of ways. We see lots of places through the Gospels where Jesus is speaking one-on-one with the woman at the well, where he's speaking with the three or the twelve of his closest followers, teaching them and mentoring them and discipling them, sometimes with the large crowds. And this is one of those few times, like the feeding of the 5,000, people pressing in to touch him, because in touching him, there was actual power. The power of God was being released. And people who were troubled by unclean spirits were being made well and being made whole. And people who were sick and diseased were miraculously being made well and healed. So this was not the vicarious close enough kind of experience. This was Jesus actually there and in the power of God healing and making whole. And the crowds and the disciples were pressing in, wanting to touch it, wanting to interact with it in real time, face to face, touch to touch. And Jesus is faithful. Here he was. I like to see it like splashing around the life of the kingdom of God. Here, Here is Jesus the originator, the creator of the universe himself, walking on earth and interacting with people. And just the first thing, just bringing healing and freedom and wholeness and miraculous power in life. Just meeting the people right there where they needed, where we need. And then it says he looked, verse 19, sorry, verse 20, then he looked up at his disciples Sort of, there was the large masses of crowds and there was the disciples that knew him a bit and had been following him from place to place. And to the disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and revile you and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven. For that is what our ancestors did to the prophets. And he goes on to say some more things, which we'll get to in a moment. These familiar words from the Sermon on the Mount, from here, Jesus' core message. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who are weeping and troubled and distressed now. Because later you will be made full. But let's take a little deeper dive into that. 
it would be a misunderstanding to say that this is just on a surface level that Jesus is saying to be rich or to have resources is bad, to be poor is desirable. It's not just talking about a bank statement. It's talking about a state of mind and a condition of the heart. It's not just talking about blessed are those who are hungry. I'm looking forward to a snack after service, but probably just like everyone else here, I'm not hungry today. Woke up and ate breakfast. Am I not blessed? Well, it's not just talking about just that surface level of things. It's a disposition of our spirit, our way of approaching the Lord, our mindset, hungry. It makes me think about when I was young and truthfully still now, one of my favorite junk food snacks was cheese puffs. You know cheese puffs? It's virtually cheese-flavored air. <laughs> Has no nutritional value whatsoever. And I love to eat cheese puffs, and then you lick the orange uh, powder off your fingers when you're done after school because I was hungry and bored and lazy. And my mom, of course, would not want me to eat cheese puffs because she was working hard in the kitchen making a nice dinner, nutritious and fulfilling and good for you and all of those things. But the cheese puff route is this. I'm hungry. I'm going to fix it my own way, the easiest route possible usually. And then what happens? You fill up on cheese puffs and then when it's time for dinner, eh, I'm not hungry. I'm full, sort of. The cheese puffs were close enough. It's not the real thing of nutrition, but close enough for the moment. This is, on this side of heaven, in our sinful condition, the not that it's sinful to eat cheese puffs, it's the inclination of our heart to just try to, I'll do it myself, and close enough and good enough is going to be good enough. It's what we heard in what Jeremiah was prophesying. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. Depends on self, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He's like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come from it. Blessed is the man, on the other hand, verse 7, who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is in the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes, for its leaves remain green, is not anxious in the year of drought, does not cease to bear fruit. And here it is, on this side of heaven, without Jesus and without the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of us, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Our hearts that are deceitful above all and desperately sick will always try to tell us when we're feeling poor, and again, that's not a bank statement necessary, when we're feeling a lack, when we're feeling a void, when we're feeling lonely, empty, confused, tired. To be poor is to be without something that is needed. Our deceitful heart, our inclination will be, I'll fix it myself. I'll fill the deficit myself. I'll fill it with food, and drink and entertainment and distraction and busyness, some things, even good things. But I'll fill it myself. Problem is, it's cheese puffs. 
it doesn't satisfy. When I'm hungry, we're all built with that hunger. Physically, it's true. Have you ever been, as I have, out on a, you know, for a great meal, just a great multi-course, fancy, big treat dinner, and you leave the restaurant after a great dessert, you think, I will never need to eat again. I am so full. And then I'm always amazed at myself as I get up the next morning and I'm hungry for breakfast. I'm hungry again. Every day, it turns out. We're knit together spiritually like that, too. We, we're spiritually hungry, and it's by design because that hunger can lead us to God. It can lead us, as Jesus is talking about in the gospel here, to come to him to have that hunger fulfilled. And to come to him every day, like manna in the desert. He could have given the Israelites enough food for a week at a time, a month at a time, a year at a time, or just made them never hungry. But he set up the system with manna in the desert where each day they would come and trust in God for that provision. And trust in having those needs met. We have a spiritual hunger in us. And sometimes it hurts because when there's things that come in and cause static in our connection with God. We drift away, we wander off, then we feel that hunger more. And our hearts that on this side of heaven tend to bend into deceitful and sick ways, say, fill that hunger up, just fill it up yourself. Close enough. Snack before dinner. Accept the fact that it's not fulfilling. I see the things connected in how Jesus came and he interacted with the people that were gathered. He splashed around life. He splashed around healing. He splashed around the real thing. And as people were experiencing that, he looked to his disciples and he said, Now, I could picture, he says, Now see this? This is real life. This is personal, real-time interaction with the living God. This is how to respond when poor, when hungry. When in pain, when in grief, when on the outside. Living in this world as a follower of Christ often puts us at odds with what society thinks is the best. Jesus says, blessed are you when they exclude you and revile you and defame you on the account of the Son of Man. It's easy to fill that up ourselves. Ah, I'll just give in. I'll just go with the culture. Or I won't say anything. I'll just look the other way. It, it satisfies that ache for a moment, but it's not really blessed. We see here, too, that when Jesus says, blessed is the man and woman, he's generally not talking about stuff. God does bless us with stuff. Because he delights in us. We're his children. He's not stingy. He does bless us with material resources but that's not, that's just a little part of it the blessed is that we get him jesus is as he's splashing out life to all who wanted it he's saying blessed are those who are poor blessed are those who have need because guess what there's good news there's an answer to it and the answer is we get the living god in that place blessed are those who are hungry and know it and realize it and aren't trying to cheese puff it. Because in that place, 
of need, of gap, of void. There's a place to interact real time, in person, with the living God. We get the relationship with him. And that, more than any material thing, is the blessing. The action is to recognize that our heart is bent to say, I'll fix it myself. I'll fill it myself. I'll take care of it myself. It's to recognize that and to say, and to make a decision to say, no, I won't. Instead, I'll come to Jesus. I'll come to the living God and say, I'm poor. There's emptiness in me. There's loss in my life. There's grief in my life. I'm hungry for more spiritually, but I can't even say more about what that is or what that looks like. I don't quite know. I just know that I'm hungry. And we bring that to God. And God says, good news. Blessed are you. I'll meet you right in that place. Let's take a look at 1 Corinthians 15, the New Testament reading that was proclaimed this morning. Because this is what pulls it together. The background on this is that some in the religious community were going around and saying that there is no resurrection from the dead. That that's a theological concept that that's, doesn't exist. Even within the, you know, you hear the, the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees, two different sects, two different uh, orders of religious leaders. There was disagreement between them. The Pharisees generally believed that there was some sort of resurrection from the dead, whatever that looked like, however that was to be expected. The Sadducees were ones particularly, and there were others, that says there's no resurrection from the dead. That, that doesn't exist. And as we like to tell the little kids, that's why they were sad, you see. <laughs> see, so you remember that. The Sadducees and others said there's no resurrection from the dead. And the followers of Jesus in the young church in Corinth were starting to take that on and say, well, maybe that's true. And Paul treats it not as a little theological point or a stylistic thing. He really comes in and speaks to it because it's a major foundational issue. Paul writes this way. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Because they talked about this no resurrection from the dead even before Jesus was on the scene. And he's saying, if there's no resurrection, that means Jesus died on the cross and was put in the tomb, and that's it. And if that's it, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even would be found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God and that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. Because, and he says again, he's really hitting this. If the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. What Paul is saying here is, if Christ has not been raised, if, in other words, for us, if Jesus is not literally alive right now, 
in time, in this moment in time, then we shouldn't be here. We should go home and eat some cheese puffs. <laughs> we should just go try to handle it ourselves and fill ourselves up and solve our own problem and meet our own needs with whatever we've got. Because if Jesus isn't really alive, then what are we doing? That's what Paul was saying there. He, he goes on. Then those who have fallen asleep, those who have passed away, they've perished. They're gone. There's no hope of reuniting around the great banqueting table. How terrible would the, the, a thought that is. If in this life we have only hoped in Christ, we of all people should be most pitied. But in verse 20, Paul writes, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It's not an obscure theological point. He's saying the fact that Jesus went to the cross voluntarily to pay the price, the wages of sin is death, although he had no sin and he had no debt to pay on behalf of all of us and all that would come to him. He went to the cross, gave his life, paid for our sins, went to the tomb, was not theoretically dead, but really dead, and was raised to life. To the world, that's a ridiculous concept. Makes no sense in a worldly, fleshy way of saying. But we're trusting in the scriptures, the eyewitness accounts, the fruit that we see in transformed lives even today, that that's not true. He's, he, like every other religious leader, didn't just die and was buried, and that's the end. Jesus and Jesus only paid a purposeful death for our sins, went to the grave, and was raised. And that changes everything. That changes everything. We serve a living God. We relate to a living God. We trust in a living God. When we're poor, meaning we have lack, we need something. There's a void. We come to a living God who is risen, who promises us, I'll meet you there. Blessed are you when you're poor. Blessed are you when you're hungry. Blessed are you when you're in distress. Because those things are great? Because those things are to be preferred? No, we don't prefer to be poor, hungry, ostracized, and in distress. But blessed because in those places, there's not a dead religion that we look to. There's a living Christ that we can grow in our knowledge and love of him. That's great news. And it transforms everything. In the Sermon on the Plain, Jesus ends with the four woes. Woe to you. Contrasting with blessed are you. They're not condemnations. They're not scoldings. I don't take these woes as scoldings. Woe to you. I take them as descriptions. Think of it this way. Woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now. In light of what we're talking about, say, woe to you who have, in your own strength and in your own power, with your own deceitful heart, filled yourself up now. Because you will be hungry. 
It's not scolding. It's not chastising. It's just saying how it is. Jesus is just saying, that won't work. There's not life there. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all speak well of you, because that's what our ancestors did to the false prophets. Go along. Get along. Succumb to the culture. Look the other way. Jesus says, woe to us when we just fall into that trap. But blessed are we when we take those things, those needs, those conditions of our heart. And in faith we come and say, Jesus, you promised. You said you'd be there with real life and with real power. If Christ hasn't been raised, then when Jesus came and the people touched him and they were healed and they were made well, then that was just for them. It doesn't apply anymore. But since Christ is raised, that flows now as much as it did then. So as we close, what I'd invite us to do is take just a moment to think about what are the places in our hearts, in our minds, in our life, in our experience, because we've all had them, where we've experienced disappointment, loss, Fear, need, and that could be anything. Loss of health, loss of loved ones, where there's a void, where there's a vacuum. Any of those places, and in our human nature, we've all tried to fill those things or soothe that pain in any number of ways. And when we're being honest, we found it to be wanting. Sometimes even, those places in us where we've longed for, where we've looked to God, where we've prayed and it doesn't seem like there's been an answer, those hopes and dreams and desires have sort of grown dead inside of us. We've sort of said, well, I guess we'll just work it out in heaven because that's never going to change or that's never going to be different or that's never going to be whole or that's never going to stop hurting. We've sort of just well settled for well close enough good enough we'll just manage but the good news of the gospel is Jesus is here to say something different it's not a magic wand where we say okay God here's my disappointment here's what I wanted to happen here's what I wish and then the circumstances just magically change and everything works out the way we thought we know that life isn't like that it's not Jesus isn't our magic wand that just gives us stuff when we need it. But he is the God who makes dead things alive. It's a difference between making good things a little bit better. Sometimes I live where I want to do my own thing and when I get in a jam I look to God and, can you give me a boost here? Can you splash some power on this and make this work out? I'm trying to accomplish this. But that's not what Jesus does. He makes dead things alive. What in our hearts are we carrying around that's dead? A dream, an expectation, a way we thought it was going to be. And because of the real circumstances of life, it hasn't been, and it might not even be, 
So we say, well, I guess close enough is close enough. This morning, let's pray and invite the living God into that space. We don't know what, if anything, on the outside will change. But it's guaranteed that Jesus, the living God, will meet us there. And if we're open to that, then a lot changes in our hearts and minds. Because we're interacting with a God who's alive. Not just a story from 2,000 years ago, but a God who is alive and who is present here today. I invite you to join me as we pray and lift these places of our heart to the Lord. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are risen, that you are alive, that you are real, and that you are here. God, I thank you that in love, not in judgment, in love, that you see us. And you see us in our place of need. You see us in our place of pain, in our place of loss, in our place of disappointment. God, I thank you that as a good father, you see us in those places and you care. You are compassionate and loving. That you are not distant. And in those places, you sent the solution, even your very own son, to die and to be buried, and yes, to be raised, to meet us in those places. God, it's a vulnerable thing to even think about and remember some of these things. Some of them we don't want to open up because in the short term, it's just less painful to just let it be. We'll just not think about it. But instead, Jesus, help us by your grace to trust you with every part of our mind, every part of our heart, every part of our life to welcome you into those places, knowing that you make things that are dead come to life. God, I pray that the words that from you today would take root and bear good fruit in our lives. Anything else that you would just wash away in Jesus' name. May the word of God dwell richly in us. In Jesus' name, amen.